Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. It is Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. Hope you are having a wonderful day. It is the latter end of the midway point through the week. So if you are a Monday to Friday worker, you are, you've just uh, crossed over the threshold and it's all, I don't know if it's downhill. It's, I can't say it's all downhill from here. This is like the, the big old confusion because downhill implies that it gets worse. But uh, if I say uphill, that implies it's harder. So I will say it hopefully only gets easier for you or you've just like, procrastinated all the week's work to Friday, and now you have to condense five days of labor into one. I didn't actually realize it until we were having a heck of a time trying to find guests for yesterday's show that this was March break, because March break only matters when you are a child or have children. And uh, despite how I act on some occasions, some people may think I am not a child and I do not have children. So I had no idea that it was March break. So if you are enjoying March break right now with your family, I hope you are uh, going to really get the most out of it before getting back into the real world in a few days time. Maybe you don't want the week to end. To uh, So ignore that whole Wednesday, hump day, uphill, downhill thing. Lots to talk about today. Going to delve into local politics, but I think there's a, a national flavor to it very shortly with the latest news out of Oxford, a conservative stronghold with an upcoming by-election and the conservatives have disqualified one of the nomination candidates. And there is a little bit of a suspicion about why, and it has something to do with his beliefs. So that's going to be coming up with Scott Hayward from the group right now. Uh, another local story that I think is national in nature is uh, not far from me. I'm in London, Ontario. And this week we learned that in St. Thomas, which is just a, town about, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 minutes south of me, they are getting a giant 600 hectare Volkswagen electric vehicle battery plant. Now this sounds exciting. It's a big employer for the city. There used to be in Talbotville, which is just outside of St. Thomas, you're getting all of the southwestern Ontario geography today, a giant Ford plant. They made the Crown Vicks there. And at a certain point, they shut down that plant and left a lot of people who had skills in the automotive industry out of work. So from a St. Thomas perspective, from a, a Southern Ontario perspective, this is great news. Investment, development, it's a new plant, it's electric vehicles of the future. But you look a little bit further through it and you kind of wonder, all right, how is this coming to fruition? Is this Volkswagen looking around and saying, you know, we really think this is the, the place that makes the most business sense because it's affordable land, there's a, a labor pool, or is it that they were paid to come here? Now, this is where we get into the nitty gritty of this. And I want to let Francois-Philippe Champagne, the industry minister, have the first word on this because he won't actually say how much the federal government spent to bring Volkswagen to St. Thomas, Ontario. In addition to what you laid out, I'm going to ask you very bluntly, Minister, did you have to cut sure. them a check and how big of one? Well, listen, you always have to be part of the, I always say government have to be part of the equation when you come to these large investments. You mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. You will recall that in the fall economic statement, we said that uh, we intend to, to level the playing field, that we would be selective. Um, so obviously government have to be a part of the equation. And I appreciate all those points and I'm certainly not trying to take away from them, but it's a really long-winded way of not, not answering, Minister, the, the original question I posed. No, Am I to sure. interpret from your answer that the federal government did 
Invest did cut the company a check. And again, I'm going to ask on behalf of Canadians, I'm not saying the investment isn't a worthwhile one, but how significant is it? How big is the size of the check you had to cut? So I'll answer very clearly your question. Canada uh, had to be part of the equation. And I'm not going to go into the details because we have discussions with many others. So discussions are commercially sensitive. But as always, Vashi will recall, we always, we always make uh, that information public in due course. I, I like how he prefaces, I'm, prefaces that with, I'm going to be as clear as I can before saying nothing at all, except for we had to be, quote, part of the equation. So we know that this is a big deal here, billions of dollars. This is the first North American electric vehicle battery manufacturing plant Volkswagen has. We look into some reporting that's been done outside of Canada, specifically in the Financial Times. There was a report in the Financial Times that said Volkswagen was putting plans for a European battery plant on hold because it could get nearly $15 billion in subsidies for a North American plant. Now, it sounds like they might have been talking about this one, given that it is the first and so far only North American plant and it's meant to serve an international market here. So we are talking about billions, b -b 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 billions with a B that is being given probably by the provincial government as well. This is not just a federal government issue to build this plant banking on electric vehicles being the future. And as Vashi says, maybe it is a good investment. Maybe there's going to be an ROI. Maybe it will generate all that and more. But this, to my view, looks like, smells like, sounds like corporate welfare. And if the business case were there, why does government need to, in Minister Champagne's words, be a part of the equation? Joining me on the line now is McDonald Laurier Institute Senior Fellow Philip Cross, formerly with Statistics Canada, now in the uh, evil, scary private sector. I appreciate you joining me, Philip. Good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me back, Andrew. So let's talk first off about, I think, the landscape here. We know that manufacturing has been in decline. The, the automotive sector has been uh, just pummeled in recent years. There are a number of reasons for that, economic, trade-related, and so on. I mean, in southwestern Ontario, it's particularly acute. And I, I never like to poo-poo something that will employ my neighbors, my friends, people in my family. But you have to look at the bigger picture here. And, and this is, I mean, corporate welfare. There's no other way to put it, right? No, and particularly when you're talking about 15 billion, we've moved to a whole different level. I mean, we've seen this is an industry that is chronically dependent on government for subsidies. Um, but typically, you know, when it's GM and Toyota and Ford and so on, it's a billion here, a billion there. Um, but, you know, 15 billion is just off the scale. Uh, it, it makes you wonder if there if there is a sound business case for this. And the, the addiction of this industry to subsidies it, it contrasts with other industries, you can look at high tech and you know, they're based in California. You know, that's where Apple and Google and uh, everybody is. And then up the, up the road, you have Microsoft in Seattle. They moved there because they wanna be as far away from Washington as possible. Uh, Bill Gates said he deliberately put uh, Microsoft in Seattle because he didn't want anything to do with, with uh, Washington politics. Uh, he wanted to be away from all that. That to me is, that's the kind of industry you want here. You don't want an industry here where they're only here because you bribe them. Uh, but it's a sad comment in Canadian uh, business environment that the only way we can get investment in this country is to bribe people to come here. I mean, it's staggering that investment has fallen 17% since 2014 in this country. We have a real problem attracting business here 
And it appears the only way we can get businesses here is if we, we give them large, ever larger amounts of money. Yeah, I, I read one article that was talking about a, a plant that's being built in Windsor by Stellantis, which is double the size of this one that's being talked about in, in St. Thomas, and it's valued at $5 billion. Now, I mean, obviously, different costs come from different places, but but if you can build something for twice the size at $5 billion, and we're talking about potentially $15 billion in subsidies, we're not just talking about bankrolling the entire construction of this plant, but also its operations for... I don't know how many years. And at this point, I don't even think you can say Volkswagen is doing it. This is just a Canadian government factory with a Volkswagen logo on it. Yeah. Well, it's a little worrisome too that Volkswagen doesn't have any history in this country. It's not like Toyota, Honda, GM, Ford that have deep roots here uh, that obviously came here. They have uh, workers that have been here and trained for a long period of time. So it makes you think at the first downturn in the auto industry, and the auto industry always has downturns, uh, the first plant Volkswagen's going to close is is going to be this one, uh, since they don't have any uh, any real business case reasons to be here in the first place. So uh, the, the other problem is, and you know, I've seen the academics uh, at the University of Windsor point out that it's very likely that a lot of these auto investments would have been made anyways. That firms decide ahead of time, okay, we're going to put a plant here. Let's see how much money we can extract from government. And that's just become part of the game. Uh, although as a new arrival, I must say Volkswagen, as I say, has mastered this game in a way that <laughs> nobody else has. Yeah, they've learned the game very well. But but let me actually push back on that point a little bit, Philip, because I, I wonder if one of the problems here is that because this is the rule, the rules of the game now, and this is uh, basically how things work, if the only way to get investment from one of these companies is to just throw money at them. Like I remember a few years ago when Amazon was uh, doing this Amazon 2.0 yeah. and building the, yeah. the second headquarters, they turned it into a contest almost. They basically opened it up to a public bidding thing and said, you know, governments just come and tell us what you're going to give us to set up shop there. Right. And it's very funny you should mention that because just in the last week, Amazon announced the suspension of work on these, this new headquarters yes. that we were all dying to get. Including uh, Ontario. Ontario was putting together yeah. a multi-billion dollar bid. For no, that. and Toronto yeah. was one of the supposed 20 finalists, although you knew yeah. that uh, uh, Amazon was never going to leave the U.S. But uh, you know, and that's what makes you worry that, you know, corporations can take all these subsidies and there's no guarantees uh, that the plants will stay open, how long they'll be open. Uh, as I say, I think it's a little worrisome that, that Volkswagen in particular doesn't have any traditional roots here in the Ontario economy. And it, it makes you wonder how deep their commitment is is here in the first place the dollars and cents of it here and again obviously we don't have the specifics which i think is in and of itself mm. noteworthy because oftentimes when governments are handing out big giant checks they want to be telling everyone and bragging and shouting from the rooftops about we're investing this much so the fact that they're not doing that suggests that even there might be a bit of embarrassment about it yeah and remember too this long-term strategy of the ontario and the federal governments of subsidizing auto uh, plants in the long term, it hasn't stopped a long term shift in this industry, which is increasingly to Mexico, uh, a certain amount staying in the U.S. and a declining proportion in Canada. The Canadian auto industry's share of North American production is in long term decline. So, you know, we shouldn't trumpet this as a winning strategy. If anything, we're just, you know, slowing or minimizing the losses here. Instead, a better strategy would be to focus on making our economy 
and our industry is so competitive that firms will want to be here because of the uh, uh, hospitable business environment, because of well-trained workers, because we have good infrastructure. These are the reasons why uh, you want industry to hear. It's, it's why industry was, the high-tech industry moved to the West Coast, as I mentioned earlier. These are the, the reasons, the ways to attract investment. I, I may be wrong about this, but it, it strikes me that there may be an ideological component here, given mm. what they're manufacturing here. This isn't just a garden variety widget factory. It's not even a car factory. It's an electric vehicle battery factory. And, and we know that government, this particular government, has been very, very much focused on climate initiatives, on green tech and all of that. And, and I, I think that when you start letting these things cloud your economic judgment, you're not mm. making economically sound decisions. Uh, very much so. I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you brought that up. It was a point I wanted to make that this really does seem to fit the um, uh, um, the ideology of this government. But as usual with this government, too, you know, the facts on the ground don't really support it. Uh, I think most people would would agree that electric vehicles aren't that much better for the environment than than uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, that this is really a lot of greenwashing. Too, and I mean, the life cycle of manufacturing a battery is is insane for uh, for emissions, for environmental harm, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you were really committed to reducing emissions, you would want people to just drive less to change their lifestyle. But of course, you know, no government will mention that because the minute you start telling people you're going to have to live in downtown in small homes, you're not going to be able to travel much, you can forget about flying around the world, immediately you're going to lose the next election and you're going to lose badly. So instead, what we do is, uh, yeah, we subsidize uh, firms, we tell them to build electric uh, battery vehicles and, uh, you know, we pretend the problem solved. Um, to make a business case for this amount of money. I mean, if you could, and, and I'm kind of of the mind that I don't think it can be made, but if you were the, the government that has to come out and sell this when that dollar figure eventually comes out, how do you at all demonstrate that ROI? I mean, I, I'm looking here, $15 billion uh, divided by 50,000, a you know, reasonable annual salary amounts to 300,000 years. <laughs> of full-time work. Like, I feel you could probably generate more employment by just giving people the $15 billion in St. Thomas. Yeah, or, I mean, there's all kinds of way, all kinds of demands on the government uh, for money these days. I mean, just look at healthcare. You know, we could mm -hmm. use a lot of money. That would create, it's very labor-intensive. That would create a lot of jobs. Um, you know, uh, at the same time, the government's been being very cheap in, in supporting Ukraine. Uh, you know, the Americans give right to checks to Ukraine for billions here and billions there, and we hand out 10 and 20 million here and there. And, um, you know, I, there's a, a lot of different, you would think there's a lot of more useful ways of spending $15 billion than building one uh, electric battery plant, no matter where it is. So there's an argument here, I think, that if a bank wouldn't give that money, why should a government? Do you think that's fair? Do you think there is a role for government to invest, to use their word, in a way that isn't as focused on business case? Well, the auto industry seems to be the exception. I mean, that seems to be an industry that, as I say, is just so completely addicted to uh, subsidies, and they've made the case so well. And they don't forget Bombardier. You're, they're feeling left out of that analysis. Yeah, okay. um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it seems to be the, uh, that industry is the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, 
I, I don't know at this point if we're going to be able to stop it, but we should at least start capping the subsidies. Uh, at some point, you know, I thought we had international trade agreements that were going to stop this kind of nonsense, amongst other things I, I should mention. I mean, you look at the, how the Americans complain about subsidies in the lumber industry, and yet when it comes to the auto industry, it's, you know, everybody subsidizes everyone and nobody makes a, a free trade complaint about it. So, um, you know, you would think at some point somebody's going to, to blow the whistle on this, but uh, the point you raise about bank loans is a very valid one. Uh, why, if, if the business case is so compelling, then why don't firms just do this on their own? And, um, you know, I, I suspect, you know, the, these uh, academics in Windsor are right that if we just stop subsidizing, I don't think the industry would disappear tomorrow. I don't think it would pull up roots. It has deep roots. It has a lot of uh, traditions and a lot of workers and um, links established with suppliers in southwestern Ontario. It's not going to wreck that overnight. So, um, but, you know, uh, it's just a matter of uh, no government is brave enough to be the first to say no. Yeah, very well said. Philip Cross from the McDonald laurier Institute. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. I, I would I would add to that as well. I mean, one of the challenges is that subsidies delay necessary industrial. I, I don't want to use industrial revolution in a grand sense, but but they delay revolution within industry. There's a, a better way of putting it, because if you are being propped up by subsidies, you have no reason to look inward and say, hey, maybe something we're doing isn't right. Maybe something we're doing needs to change. And in this particular case, I mean, electric vehicle manufacturing is probably one of the biggest rackets because the consumers are not there. Governments are there, but consumers are not there. Consumers are being told every day how great electric vehicles are. And some people want them. Some people try them out. Some people rave about them. One thing that Tesla has done, which I think is tremendous, is they've made electric vehicles cool. It used to be an electric vehicle was a Prius or a Nissan Leaf, where there's no way to look cool. In fact, you look the opposite of cool driving a, a Prius or a Nissan Leaf. But uh, what's happened with Tesla is they've actually revolutionized people's relationships with electric cars. But does Tesla exist the way it does now without governments heaping billions and billions of dollars to subsidize consumer purchase of them? If you looked back when Ontario, and I don't have the numbers handy because I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but back when the Wynn Liberals were in power in Ontario, they were putting millions towards luxury electric vehicles because it was the luxury cars that people were buying and they were getting each on each one of these, like tens of thousands of dollars, I think it was, off the purchase price just to buy one of these things. So you looking like a badass with your Tesla, whatever the model was, was subsidized by Kathleen Wynne. And all of that is, I think, part and parcel of why this is an industry that lives on subsidy. And the people that talk about this in, in ideological terms are very inauthentic. I, I don't have the clip handy, but when we were covering the World Economic Forum a few weeks back in Switzerland, in Davos, there was this one mining executive that was on this panel. I think his name was Andrew Forrest. I can't remember the name of the company, but a mining executive on this panel talking about, oh yeah, we need to switch to electric. We need to get off of this. And, you know, mining, as I said at the time, 
is one of the most resource intensive industries in the world. Mining, oil and gas, forestry. These are like the big three evil companies. The only one that could possibly be worse than them to the left is to the tobacco industry. But even the tobacco industry is uh, the definition, I guess, of, of green. So the uh, industry that is probably one of the most vilified mining, and here's this mining executive saying we need to transition away from oil and gas. And you say, well, that seems a bit odd until you look at all the mining that his company did and you find that oh, they're on the cutting edge of lithium mining, the lithium that is going to be needed when we are putting batteries in everything and when the world is to be a battery-powered world. So all of this is often from people who do not believe the crap they are selling. And I, I would talk about this in terms of Volkswagen. I mean, Volkswagen, I don't blame them for this because they've actually come hat in hand to government in Canada and in Ontario. Doug Ford is, like I said, not squeaky clean in this. I'm almost certain. And these governments have given them to the tune of $15 billion. Like 15 billion. Like Philip was saying a few moments ago, Philip Cross, when there's a $1 billion investment people get a little bit uh, uncomfortable with it when there's a two billion dollar investment people get really uncomfortable we're talking about here 15 billion dollars in subsidies this will pay for the plant it will pay for the staff of the plant it will pay for espresso machines at the plant it will pay for this whole operation for several years to the point where i'm wondering what on earth it is volkswagen is even putting forward here what on earth is Volkswagen even shelling out? Because right now, it seems like this is an entirely Canadian initiative, an entirely Canadian prospect, where the private sector is not even having to pony up any money. And this is a subsidy-driven industry right now that Canadians bear the brunt of, Canadian taxpayers have to bear the brunt of. And, and just to, again, play this clip here, that, well, this is, I think, another clip of the same interview of Philippe Francois Champagne not acknowledging the price tag. And I can appreciate the commercial sensitivity, and you're dealing with a company on this, but there is, a, there is going to be an announcement of some, at some point on, on how much money we're actually investing, right? Just for transparency. As always. Canadian. So, so As when, always. when can we expect to hear that, sir? Well, in due course, because like I said, we are having discussion with a number of players in the ecosystem, and for now, uh, this is commercially sensitive. But as always, David, uh, we always disclose uh, that these informations in due course and Canadians will have a chance uh, to see that. Okay, sorry, I made a mistake there. Different interview, same talking point. But, but these are the magic words, in due course. We'll find out how much the government spent on this in due course. And by that time, it will probably be after the next election when uh, conveniently the number will have less utility than it does now. So, uh, you know, what was that old Ronald Reagan line about, uh, you know, governments? I, I'm going to get it wrong, so I won't even bother. But it was the line about if it stops, if it moves, regulate, if it moves, tax it, if it stops moving moving, subsidize it. If it keeps moving again, regulate it or something to that effect. But it's basically that the circle of life is subsidization and regulation. And nowhere does government say, hey, hands off this, let the private sector do its best, let the private sector do its work. And then we move on from there. I uh, want to shift gears here to a different topic, one that is not actually all that far from the storied plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. This is in Oxford County, which again is just like, what, I don't know, 30 minutes down the road from yours truly here. Although my hands are clean in this. I don't live in Oxford County. I'm not a voting member of the Conservative Party or anything like that. 
But there is a nomination battle going on right now for a by-election. Dave McKenzie, the longtime Conservative MP, retired from his seat in February, just uh, over a month ago, and now there are a bunch of Conservatives vying to replace him as the Conservative candidate, which in Oxford County is pretty much a sure bet that you're going to be elected as the Member of Parliament. It's pretty much a sure thing that whomever wins the nomination will be the next Conservative MP in Oxford. And it's been quite hotly contested. Arpan Kanna, who is a Brampton lawyer, formerly Ontario co-chair for Pierre Polyev, he's running. And you have Rick Roth, a Toronto political strategist who's there. You have uh, Deb Tate, who is the daughter of Dave McKenzie, the recently retired MP. And then you have Gar- or had up until last night, Garrett Van Dorlin. Now, I've met Garrett because I am... I mean, I've interviewed many conservatives in my career, and he worked with Leslie Lewis on her leadership bid. He's uh, right now working in the office of a conservative member of parliament. He's been involved in conservative politics, but he's from Otterville, which is in Oxford County. And Garrett Van Dorland is pro-life. If you look at, I should, probably should have uh, pulled it up on the screen here, but on his website, he talks about faith. He talks about family. He talks about freedom. Uh, those things are, are not really compatible with the government of Canada today, but they They are certainly compatible or are supposed to be with the conservative movement in this country. But last night, Garrett Van Dorland was disqualified by the Conservative Party of Canada's National Candidate Selection Committee. And I'm going to give you what the party says is the reason for the disqualification. And you can read the full story on this over at tnc.news. But what the Conservative Party said and I'm quoting directly from a statement I got from their spokesperson, is that uh, Garrett Van Dorland, a nomination applicant in Oxford, was disqualified from standing in a nomination race by the party's National Candidate Selection Committee due to a failure to comply with the obligation to disclose required information during the candidate application process. The recommendation to disqualify this individual was first made by the local candidate nomination committee. And just by way of reference, uh, candidate nominees have to provide to the party a list of all current and former social media accounts and websites, a copy of any deleted or publicly inaccessible social media or other online content, and a copy of all articles, media coverage, quotes, interviews that relate to the candidate. And I just want to give you some perspective here, because I've been a candidate. I ran in, in 2018 unsuccessfully for the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. And in doing so, I had to go through this application process, and it was insane what they asked for. They actually asked for a full export of my Facebook account, of of all social media accounts. Now, if you don't know what you're doing and you just go into Facebook and click the export button, what you don't actually realize is that you're not only giving an archive of everything you've ever posted and everyone who's ever commented on it and all of your comments, you're also giving the party an archive of your direct messages, your private correspondence, which is no different than handing over a copy of your email inbox and your text message history. So people don't realize they're handing that over. When I was doing my uh, form, I actually went in and I removed the direct messages from the zip file that I was giving them because I happen to know how to do that. Uh, but other people are handing over everything, which lets you 
be, I think, incredibly susceptible to blackmail from your own party if they feel like it down the road. The federal conservative application is even larger and more comprehensive than the provincial application that I had to deal with. The party did not specify what details he didn't give them. Uh, so we reserve a judgment on that. But uh, Scott Hayward says it's not about this. It is about his pro-life beliefs. Scott Hayward is the co-founder of Right Now, which I should uh, disclose as I have on the show before, was an organization that supported my candidacy in 2018, but that doesn't color my approach. I, I've been an open supporter of them before and since, irrespective of that. Scott Hayward joins me on the line now. Scott, good to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Really appreciate it. So, so why do you think, first and foremost, that this was about uh, Garrett's pro-life beliefs? Well, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Like, I think that does play a role in it, of uh, Garrett's strong pro-life beliefs. Uh, but I also think that um, in the riding there are, and I don't know if you reviewed this already, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but there are four uh, contestants that are contesting for the Conservative Party of Canada nomination in Oxford for the upcoming by-election since Dave McKenzie announced that he's no longer running for re-election and has since resigned the seat. So um, in that by-election, or pardon me, in this nomination for that by-election, there is a candidate, Arpan Khanna who is uh, favored by the party leader and those around the party leader, which is, you know, fine um, to a certain extent. Um, but I think what was happening, uh, Andrew, is that uh, Garrett, having actually been born and raised in the riding, um, having been involved in uh, with the EDA in the riding for a number of years, I mean, his family's been there for a number of years, uh, he sold a boatload of memberships. Uh, from what I talked to people in the riding, we're talking about close to 50% of the memberships either were uh, purchased for Garrett or they were already members and they're identified as, as Garrett Van Dorlin supporters. So when you're yeah, talking let about... Me, let me just... I, sure. I know you're not talking about specific numbers, but let me just jump in there because because this is uh, con conceivably a period where people who signed up to vote in the leadership race would right. still be members. So you're saying even with that his numbers are close to half of the riding membership numbers. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. So the, the, the closure date of the nomination was at the end of February. So uh, you would have a number of people in the riding who um, purchased a membership in February, 2022 uh, to support a number of candidates, including Pierre Polyev. And those uh, memberships, even though they would expire at the end of February, because the closure happened before the end of February, they would be eligible to vote. So you're talking about just under 6,000 uh, members of the party eligible to vote in the riding, which is kind of a crazy high number. You're talking about 6% of the population of the riding. You're probably Calgary, talking, uh, you know, like Calgary West numbers. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about something of like 12 15% of those who are eligible to vote in an election are members of the riding. So it's a huge number. And from what I've talked to different people on the riding, in the riding, uh, it sounds like Garrett has about half of them, just under half. So, you know, when you're talking about four candidates running for a nomination and one of the four has 50%, which is well over the 25% that you split up evenly, I mean, you're talking about pretty close to first ballot victory. So I think that does play a big role into it. Um, in addition to the fact that, that he is pro-life, uh, but I think that's more of a secondary role than than the fact that there is a uh, favored candidate by the leader who is a good candidate for the record. Like our Arpan Khanna is uh, someone we supported when he ran as a candidate in Brampton, where he's from, in the 2019 general federal election. So I don't think anyone has a problem with Arpan. I think what people have a problem with, both in the riding and across the country, is the heavy-handed tactics that we're currently seeing by the party that 
were supposed to go away with the removal of Aaron O'Toole as leader have now reared their ugly head again uh, with Pierre as leader. So I think a lot of people would like to see that that cleaned up. So from my perspective, at least, Andrew, I think those those are the two reasons. Number one being there is a favorite candidate. And number two, I, I do think that there are people in the party who um, don't necessarily shoe, uh, pardon me, share uh, uh, Garrett's uh, strong pro-life beliefs. Yeah, you know, I, the thing about nominations is that oftentimes they're, well, I mean, they're they're very dirty, they're very messy. Uh, it's infighting, which is never good in a, in a party, and I'd say worse than leaderships in a way, just because yeah. sometimes there's so little scrutiny on them. Uh, but the challenge that I've always had with them, and I have a very personal history with this, because I was standing for nomination, I was confident I was going to win the nomination, and then uh, Doug Ford appointed me, which made things very difficult for me, mm -hmm. for the riding, for the other candidate. Uh, and, you know, there were reasons that the party didn't want him, but it's much easier if the party just comes out and says that when they don't want a candidate. And, you know, I look at what's happening here, and I've, obviously I don't have the specifics of, of this, but, you know, when they're saying not completing... When you want, when you have an application as detailed as these applications are, it almost strikes me as designed to fail because you know that if you really want to get rid of someone, you can probably find something in the 50 pages where they missed the comma or something. Like you, you could probably find something if you look for it. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I've spoken to members of the National Council um, who I've been in touch with about this issue for about a week now when it came to our attention. And it seems like that the party has not shared with members of the National Council, at least as since we're recording this, um, the details of, of what that non-disclosure was, right? Are, are we talking the fact that uh, Garrett had an entire social media account that he deleted or a website that he deleted that he hasn't disclosed? Given that that's a question in the 50 plus page candidate application uh, for the Conservative Party of Canada, which it, frankly is not a bad question to ask. Although, but I don't, I, how are you supposed to give copies of stuff you've deleted? I mean, I, I deleted it for a reason. I didn't keep the copy. I mean, that, so that, yeah, that in and of itself there, is, uh, I think, a bit of a flaw in it, but fair enough. To, yeah, to, I mean, to I mean that's fair enough. But, but we're talking like an entire website you've deleted or whatever. I think that's an yeah. issue. Or are we talking about, you know, a Facebook or a comment that Garrett made on a post, you know, back in 2010 and three weeks later, that, well, you know, that's kind of a, not a very terrible post, so I'm going to, or a comment, so I'm going to delete that comment. Are we talking about something like that? No one knows, right? Mm -hmm. one, one is reasonable, right? To not, one is reasonable for a candidate to be disqualified if they don't disclose something as big as I had this entire website and I deleted it and I didn't tell you about it versus, you know, there was this comment I had up for three weeks on a Facebook post, you know, 15 years ago, and I can't remember because it's 15 years ago and I deleted it. So what are we talking about here? Uh, no one seems to know, which suggests mm -hmm. to me that they don't really have anything. Um, otherwise, that that would probably be shared. Another national councillor told me that um, the party had uh, told them that uh, it's not so much what the content of any of the deleted stuff is, because we all have stuff that we've deleted online, whether it be tweets or Facebook comments or posts or whatever. Like I, I think very few of us who have been online for over 10 years and maybe we're aging ourselves, Andrew, um, won't we'll, we'll have something that- My internet do. baggage beats yours any day of the week, <laughs> yeah. Scott. I think CBC can tell you that too. But yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Um, so uh, the, the National Council kind of told me, well, if the content doesn't matter, then why do we care? And, and if it's not that big of a deal, like it's, it's, is it reasonable that uh, he forgot this or is it unreasonable? And, and those are the questions that are left unanswered, even by two national councillors, again, which strongly suggests to me that, that there's nothing there. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned, Andrew, when you were running for your 
uh, provincial nomination in London West of, I believe, for the Progressive Conservative yeah. Party of Ontario. And I think, and I agree with you, that you were you were well on your way to win that nomination. And then you all of a sudden you were appointed by the now Premier Doug Ford. You know, I think that does a lot of candidates, even yourself, a disservice because it yeah. rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And it's interesting because I don't know if you've, you've talked about this on your show yet or not, but Arpan himself has come out and said, well, Garrett should be reinstated. And he sent a public letter to the National Council because the appeal is going to be heard over the weekend that Garrett should be reinstated. And Rick Roth, who is another candidate running in, in the nomination, has said the same thing as well. So, you know, if, if, if you are a candidate that is, um, you know, in a position to win with Garrett gone, you're probably not going to say anything, right? Because because you're going to you're going to win the nomination with him gone. But I like I said, I think Arpan is, is a good candidate, uh, is a good person. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad that he stated that. And, um, you know, if if Garrett thinks that he should run and Arpan thinks he should run and Rick Roth thinks he should run and members of the party think he should run and members of caucus think he should run, then I would certainly hope that members of National Council and the leader and those around the leader would also share that view. You know, and, and just going back to the fundamental principles here, and I, I know people's eyes may glaze over when you start talking about, you know, what's in the party constitution. But like, in all honesty, you get the outcome you want or you get the process you want. If you want mm -hmm. open and fair and transparent nominations, then have them. If you want preferred candidates, which is an entirely legitimate approach to building a party. I, I think it's entirely legitimate if the leader says, no, 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 we need to put a certain type of candidate forward in each riding, then be transparent about that and don't go through the whole charade. And, and nothing bothers me more and this was like patrick brown 101 where you say yep. we're going to be the party of grassroots the party of democracy but then every nomination is somehow manipulated to have the outcome that patrick brown wants yeah i i would agree with you on that uh to a certain extent like i, I think if if you had or, or if there's an attempt to amend the constitution of the conservative party of canada to state that you know x number of ridings or in a by-election and outside of general we're going to be appointing candidates as opposed to allowing the nomination process to go forward. I don't think that'd be very popular with a lot of supporters of the party. No, because... but, but, but that proves the point though, because the party has decided that open nominations are important. In theory, in practice, <laughs> well, we're seeing yes. something else completely. And again, I, I, I go back like, you know, we're, we're early days into Pierre Polyev's leadership. And I think that there's um, a lot of positive changes that have been made in, in relation to the previous leader. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, but this is the type of stuff that led to the end of the leadership of Aaron O'Toole. And I think a lot of people don't really want to see that happen with Pierre. I mean, even if he didn't vote for Pierre as number one, I didn't. I voted him number two. Leslie was number one for me. You know, we in, in the Conservative Party of Canada, we they have gone through, what, three leadership races in five years or something like that. I don't think people are really interested in doing that again. But it's stuff like this that inevitably kind of leads it down that road. And so I hope those kind of close to him are, are, are learning this lesson today and throughout the rest of the week. And I hope National Council does uh, accept the appeal of Garrett and, and reverse the decision that um, let's not go down this road anymore because it isn't in the nature of the party. Like you were saying, it, it, if there was a move to amend the constitution of the party to allow for appointments, I think there would be a big uproar. Whether those people are pro-life or, or, or pro-abortion or whether they are libertarians or, you know, uh, fiscal hawks or uh, foreign policy hawks or whatever the case might be, whatever type of conservative they are, I think we can all probably agree, even Red Tories, I would say, I think we can all probably agree, like all the way around, people just want to have an open, fair nomination process. Now, that being said, I, I think a lot of people also agree that 
there should be some sort of mechanism in place to have disqualifications when when necessary. Um, sometimes there are people who, who want to run for public office who have done things in the past that are just extraordinarily problematic. Um, and, and that, you know, all, political parties are, are at the end of the day, private clubs, but at the same time, they establish rules of the need to, to apply even handedly. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, this... yeah, a party should have the right to disqualify, you know, a lifelong liberal who just sees an opportunity to co-opt yeah. a nomination for sure. But 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 these things should be done in the most, I'd say, narrow way possible while keeping with what the grassroots want. And I mean, in some ways, I, I might even say let the liberal run because the members would reject them. Exactly. That's a whole can of worms. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, I, I think there's a lot of reasonable people within the Conservative Party of Canada that it makes up its ranks and files and the members. Right. Um, and I think we've we've seen the reasonableness of party members, you know, in the last three leadership races, I would argue. Right. Um, and I think that there is a self-regulation mechanism there to to be had. Right. And then I think that the process of disqualification is something in an extreme, you know, a problematic past might be um, someone who has a, a heinous sexual crime that they've committed in the past or something like that, where it's just. It's just, you know, very, very inappropriate to, to to have a candidate like that. But that's not what we're talking about here, right? We don't even know what we're talking about here because uh, they won't tell us. And in fact, Andrew, you have more information than the candidate himself. The party gave you more information about the reason why he was disqualified as little information as was provided to you than Garrett himself from when I spoke to him earlier today. So um, that's also interesting to me that the, the party is communicating with members of the media um, more than they are with their own members and their own contestants. I mean, it'd be very interesting, um, uh, Andrew, if you were charged with a crime and you went to appeal it and you had no evidence presented to you as to why they charged you with that particular crime. And, and that's what we're experiencing here. So, um, you know, the, again, these are things that we saw in the past under a previous leader uh, in the pretty, pretty recent past. And, you know, hopefully... The lesson is learned here today and this week, and this is something that can be reversed and something that we don't see again going forward. Scott Hayward of Right Now, thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I, on, just on that last point, I should say, I got into this weird, I don't know if it's a Twitter fight, because I, I was sort of just doing it haphazardly while I was doing other things, but a Twitter exchange. I broke my rule, and I engaged with an anonymous Twitter account. So I beg forgiveness uh, of the standards I've set for myself. But uh, someone who was taking aim at the fact that I, in the headline of the article I wrote about this for True North, said that a pro-life candidate was disqualified. And I, I quoted Scott Hayward, a comment that he made earlier today, saying, saying that he thinks he was targeted because of his pro-life beliefs. And I included at the time that the party had not given any reason, uh, which they hadn't. And then I published the story. And then, you know, like 30 minutes later, the party gives me a reason. I include that in the story as I, I told them I would. Uh, and then this person was like fighting with me about misrepresenting because he wasn't disqualified for being pro-life. I never said the party said he was disqualified for being pro-life. I said he's a pro-life candidate who was disqualified, which I think is very much the case. And I, I appreciate Scott taking a, a bit of a nuanced view here that he also appeared to be a front runner when the party may have its own preferred candidate. And look, I worked with Arpan uh, many years ago in Ottawa. I like Arpan a lot. This is not about him. In fact, Arpan is probably one of the most, I mean, except for Garrett, who was disqualified, Arpan is one of the most disadvantaged right now because he now looks like he's being given this invisible hand pushing him across the finish line. If he was going to win, let him win. And that's it. Have a, a fair fight. And that's what Arpan has called for. It's what Garrett's called for. It's what um, 
uh, Rick Roth called for. And I was just thinking Deb Tate, who's uh, Dave McKenzie's daughter. I don't know if she's called for it. I looked for her on Twitter and I couldn't find her on Twitter. So maybe she has or has not. But uh, nevertheless, uh, there is always going to be more to nomination battles. We'll cover that as the show progresses in the week ahead. Uh, Just on our closing note here, I, I have to end with an update to the great quest for a special rapporteur on China's interference in Canadian elections. I would like it noted that I lost because I predicted it was going to be uh, Beijing Bev herself, Beverly McLaughlin. It is not Beijing Bev. It is David Johnston. So David Johnston, the former governor general, who was also the, by the way, the commissioner of the, uh, what was it called? The, uh, I forget the name of it. The Leadership Debates, uh, was it the Leadership Debates Commission? Yeah, he was the Leadership Debates Commission commissioner who made the decision to ban True North and Rebel from covering the debate. So that is the eminent Canadian who's now the special rapporteur on interference in Canadian elections by China. Uh, David Johnston did decide to accredit uh, Xinhua, which is the uh, Chinese state media agency, to the debate. I'm, I'm not saying that's connected to this. I just have a little bit of a bone to pick with uh, with David Johnston. But for all of you who had uh, David Johnston in the uh, pool, you win the fully loaded electric Volkswagen that'll be rolling off the line near St. Thomas in just a couple years time. So congratulations. You can pick it up at reception. That does it for me for today. We will be back with fake news Friday in just two days time. And then more of the Andrew Lawton show next week. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to true North at www.tnc.news.